0: This is our American stories. And now, here's the story of one of America's top comedians who became so successful it scared him to death. Here's Dave Chappelle's story.
1: This whole world is drug-infested. Hate-infested, drug-infested world. Hate drugs. I heard the worst drug story. You know what my friend told me, you know what he's dealing with? His landlord is hooked on crack. That's that's terrible. That's pressure your landlord's hooked on crack that means you've gotta have the rent <laughs> you come around
2: I okay. got the rent
3: it's not even due yet it's the tenth come on I need it let me just get $20 of it now and then uh, just give me the rest of the end of the month every couple of hours hey look I'm gonna need some more of the rent this buildings falling apart things came up <laughs>
1: comes home early from a party. Landlord's in the crib going through it.
3: What are you doing in my house? Ah! Where's the sink? I came to fix it. It's in the kitchen. I thought it was in the drawer. I'll fix it tomorrow when I come for the rent.
4: Dave Chappelle is not your average Hollywood story. Born in Washington, D.C., the youngest of three children, both of his parents were college professors, and his mother was even a Unitarian minister. After graduating high school, Chappelle realized that he wanted to be in show business when his dad gave him some valuable advice.
1: My mother and my grandmother were freaked out. You know, I was the first person in my family not to go to college that had not been a slave. (laughs) So I was really breaking from tradition, and uh, it was like a graduation lunch we were having and they had my dad come and talk to me and my dad takes me outside and he's like listen he says to be an actor is a lonely life everybody wants to make it and you might not make it and I said to my dad well well, that depends on what making it is dad. Smart, smart ass kid depends on what making it is dad. He says what do you mean? I said well you're a teacher I said if I could make a teacher salary doing comedy I think that's better than being a teacher." And he started laughing. He said, if you keep that attitude, I think you should go. He said, but name your price in the beginning. If it ever gets more expensive than the price you name, get out of here.
4: Chappelle moved to New York City and performed at Harlem's famed Apollo Theater in front of the infamous Amateur Night audience, but he was booed off stage. Dave Chappelle later described the experience as the moment that gave him the courage to continue his show business aspirations. So he quickly made a name for himself in the New York comedy circuit. At age 19, he made his film debut in Mel Brooks' Robin Hood Men in Tights. He also appeared on Star Search three times but lost. The same year, Chappelle was offered the role of Bubba in Forrest Gump. Concerned the character was demeaning and the movie would bomb, he'd turn down the part. Just a few years later, his first lead role was in the 1998 comedy film Half-Baked, which he co-wrote. It was around this time that Chappelle landed a role in a pilot TV show based on his failure on stage at the Apollo.
1: I was 23 when I was doing Half-Baked. I was getting ready to turn 24. And I was going through all the things that a dude goes through when it goes from one level to the next, starring in my, a movie that I wrote. So things start getting crazy around you. And my 24th birthday was coming on August the 24th, and I said, this is going to be a big one. And the morning that I turned 24, phone rang, and my sister was like, Dad had a stroke. For the next year... I watched my father teeter on life and death and it was just all this sh- stuff man like I was a uh, dad was dying, the half-baked didn't come out the way I wanted it to come out I was real upset about that because it was a real cool script and then I saw it, I was like hey man you made a weed movie for kids I get a call on my cell phone from Hollywood I'm like hello Hollywood they're like hello Dave <laughs> They're like, that pilot you did for Fox, it looks like they want to pick it up. We need you to come out because they want to meet with you. And I was like, well, listen, I can't really come out right now. got a real bad situation at home. Can we talk about this on the phone? No, no, they would rather meet with you in person. I jumped on that plane and left my father's bedside, which I regret to this day. And I went out and I sat with these people in this room. Yeah, Dave, we really like the show, but the the pilot episode was about me getting boot off stage at the Apollo. They go, you know, but what are we going to do about it? I mean, there's not really any white people at it. So, well, it's about the Apollo. It's not really white. Well, you know, we were thinking about the girl on the show. We didn't think she was that funny, not that good looking. I think we should recast her, maybe. And they started using terms like universal appeal. Basically saying they want me to recast a girl with a white woman. I say, yeah, I don't think I can do this, and, and,
4: and I quit. The following day, Dave Chappelle would learn a valuable lesson that he would never forget about the media and himself. The cover variety. Chappelle pulls the race card.
1: The race card. And I get calls from Newsweek, 60 Minutes. Everybody, we want your story. <laughs> now I'm scared to death. I'm like Rosa Parks or something. I'm like, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> I was just venting a little bit and then a few months later dad dies and that's hard for a young dude in his life that's a that's a real tough loss i was there when he died and he went from being my father to what are we going to do with the body within moments it was over and i'm going through all this stuff and this is the guy i would usually talk to right dad I got to figure this out for myself. I don't want to figure this out for myself. You know, I was beat down. I wasn't living right. You know what I mean? Like, the weed thing was just a bad habit at this point. And, and, you know what I mean? All these, you know, chicken-head girls you mess with when it comes with the territory. I'm just being real. Just being real. I just wasn't living right, man. I didn't feel good, and, and the stand-up stuff was just some angry stuff. It was just like I was kind of bottoming out. But when my dad died, because i have been commuting back and forth to Ohio so much, that's when I bought
4: the farm. When we come back, the rest of the Dave Chappelle story, where he turns his back on Hollywood and a $50 million contract. This is Our American Stories.
0: This is our American story, and now we return to the story of Dave Chappelle. When we left off, Dave's father had died, so he decided to get his family out of LA and move to a farm in Ohio. Here's Jesse. So, Dave and his family
4: moved to Yellow Springs, Ohio, where his father had lived, buying a 65 acre farm. The illusion of fame and fortune in Hollywood was shattered forever. It's something so
1: real in contrast to what Hollywood is a very powerful illusion. When your dad died, it kinda just broke the spell like, oh, this is bullsh**. Look, I've been spending so much time doing this. What about my family? What about my friends? Wait, whatever happened to my friends? Damn, I don't even have any friends. So I bounce, man. Uh, New Year's Eve, 1999, I, I moved
4: into that farm,
1: and that was it. As far as I was concerned, I was done with show business.
4: But his career in show business was just beginning. In 2003, he debuted his own weekly sketch comedy show on Comedy Central called Chappelle Show. After just two seasons, it was a massive success. Due to the show's popularity, Comedy Central's new parent company Viacom offered Chappelle a $50 million contract to continue production of Chappelle's show for two more years. Season 3 was scheduled to begin airing on May 31st, 2005, but Chappelle stunned fans and the industry when he abruptly left during production for South Africa. Let's start the show. Immediately following his departure, tabloids quickly and repeatedly speculated that Chappelle's exit... Was driven by drug addiction or a mental health issue.
1: I was freaked out, man, with the fame thing and, and being called uh, crazy and drug addict and all these things. Uh, scared me. You know, being treated that way. Like I'm not a person anymore. And then I got to make some real choices, man. Is that what I want for myself? Did I get too big? Because I like. People. I like entertaining and the higher up I go, for some reason the less happy I am. You know, is it gonna get to the point where I'm doing a strip tease on T R L or waving a gun on the street, <laughs> saying they're trying to kill me? No, I'm not gonna let it get to that point. I'm gonna go to Africa, I'm gonna find a way to I'm gonna find a way to be myself, man. I gotta In Africa there's a small community of people that don't know anything about the work i do and they just treat me like i'm a regular dude so i knew that in africa i'd have a place to sleep that i wouldn't have to feel strange you know when they would call me crackhead and all these things in the country where i'm from in africa they didn't know anything they was feeding me and taking care of me taking me to the mall and just regular stuff and it just made me feel good it just reminded me that I was a
4: person, you know. It would be some time before Dave Chappelle went back to the United States from Africa, and 10 years before he would return to the stage with his stand-up comedy.
1: I didn't even know they were saying those things about me. Then i call home, and people would be like, oh my God, are you all right? Yeah, chill, I'm in Africa, baby, what's going on? <laughs> and then I got a call from a journalist that had been working on a story, and he was like, yeah, rumor mill's going on about you just want to clear a few things up, and I'm like, hey, what's going on? Okay, uh, do you smoke crack? I said, what? Do you smoke crack? Did you graduate from high school? Uh, I mean, it was all these crazy questions. And I thought about never coming back. I said, this, this place is crazy. I'm like, I'm, I'm that dude. I just thought about all the things that celebrities go through and what celebrities become in our culture. You know, if you Brad Pitt and Jennifer Anderson, and your marriage is breaking up, that's an awful thing. But to see that speculation in people, gotta sting a little bit. And then I realized, oh my god, I'm one of those people. That's a small club, man. That's a weird place to be. Ain't really no going back. You can't, you can't get unfamous. You can get infamous. So I got scared. I'm not gonna lie, y'all. I was scared to death. And I, I didn't touch the mic. You know, it was cool, man. The first time I went back out and did stand-up, it was in Cincinnati. So it's not far from the farm. I said, if I got to run, I can get home fast. <laughs> and um club sold out real fast. I played a comedy club. And, man, when I walked out on that stage and them people were screaming, I get teary-eyed just thinking about it. Because this industry can say whatever they want, but man, people will hold you up. And that crowd, man, my spirits was so low when they was just holding me up. And I, I hadn't told jokes, but this sh- was just coming back like, Karate to kid again. You're the best around. I just, I was,
4: I was just doing it, man. In August of 2013, Dave Chappelle returned to full-time touring stand-up comedy as a headliner. In 2017, Netflix released two never-before-seen specials which would hail directly from Chappelle's personal comedy vault. The specials were an immediate success as Netflix announced a month later that they were the most viewed comedy specials in Netflix history. Also in 2017, Dave Chappelle walked into the newly renovated Chappelle Auditorium at Allen University in Columbia, South Carolina. Chappelle stopped to admire the work of Bishop William D. Chappelle, whom the auditorium is named after, He was a pastor, businessman, Allen University president, and more importantly, Dave Chappelle's great-grandfather. After being awarded the key to the city by the mayor, Dave Chappelle stopped by the auditorium to speak to an audience filled with students about the decisions he's made in his own life and the importance of staying true to yourself. For all the things
5: that I've done, I'm most renowned for what I didn't do. I've made decisions in my career that a lot of people have called insane. 2004 had a $50 million deal on the table, and in a crisis of conscience, flipped the table over and walked away. Went to South Africa. Everyone said I was running away from the money. That is not true. In fact, I still want that money. The idea that I wanted to just share with you guys is the idea that sometimes you you do what you think is best. Uh, whether anybody understands it or not. I heard a story about my father where someone told me he used to do statistics for a company in D.C. The company he did statistics for started doing business with the South African government. So he quit his job. It's caused a lot of problems between his him and his wife, it's hard for a man when he can't provide for his family the way he wants to, and he suffered through it. And a generation later, when I had my crisis of conscience, I was able to go to a free South Africa and get away from the heat. This idea that what you do in your lifetime informs the generations that comes after you is something I keep thinking about, something that is so much bigger than just ourselves. Today I'm standing in front of you guys, and I know you guys are like, oh, I know you're bored. But I see family of mine in the front row that I, some of who I've never met, and I just realize how how all, all of us are, are connected. That my great-grandfather built something more substantial than buildings. He, he built a community. And he built, more importantly than a community, he, he built a way. People are trying to replace the ideas of good and bad with better or worse. And that is incorrect. You gotta keep your ethics intact because uh, good and bad is a compass that helps you find the way. And a person that only does what's better or worse is the easiest type of person to control. They are a mouse in a maze that just finds the cheats. But the one who knows about good and bad, will realize that he's in a maze. It's okay to be afraid, because you can't be brave or courageous without fear. The idea of being courageous is that even though you're scared, you just do the right thing anyway. So in 2004, I walked away from $50 million, and in November, I made a deal for $60 million. So... Although I am not the most famous comedian of my time, I would like to know what their great-grandfathers did. I'm, I'm very proud today.
4: Thank you very much. And that's the story of the one and only Dave Chappelle. A testament to being true to yourself. He walked away from a $50 million contract, fame, and the adoration of his fans just to be there for his family. And himself. Dave Chappelle is not your average Hollywood story. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
6: Welcome to The Jump. Um, Just literally
5: two or three minutes ago, we were informed that our friend Craig Sager has passed away. I'm very sorry to inform you all. Craig, as so many of you know, had such a valiant fight against leukemia. He was diagnosed in 2014. He went through three bone marrow transplants, each one tougher than the last. And I have to tell you, having had so many conversations with him, and his family along the way, the way Craig fought this spoke so much to the kind of life that he lived, the kind of values that he had, and the family that he had around him.
0: And that was Rachel Nichols of ESPN breaking the news. The TNT's Craig Sager, the ultimate sideline reporter and husband and father to five children, died of leukemia. And this is a part of our final thought series, where we hear from folks who are dying and or their loved ones. And today's is on the life of Craig Sager. His very first gig, as a 22-year-old radio reporter in Illinois, he wanted to drive to Atlanta to try and see Hank Aaron break Babe Ruth's untouchable home run record. You can see in the video there, a young Craig Sager trying to get in there and snag an interview with Henry Aaron. There were just two problems. He didn't have press credentials. Oops, forgot that. And his boss would fire him if he wasn't back the next morning. Oops, he didn't care. There he was, running after Hank Aaron. (laughs) And uh, just a beautiful thing to see. The very first reporter to rush the field and the very first reporter to celebrate with all the players as Henry Aaron broke that illustrious Babe Ruth record. A 21-year-old kid right behind Hank Aaron, again, you can see it, the most famous shot of him crossing home plate. Craig Sager would report on almost every sport, but he made his mark as a sideline reporter in the NBA. If you don't know Craig, he was most known for his absolutely ridiculous outfits, wearing clashing suits of every color and pattern known to mankind, always with a handkerchief and cowboy boots that were often skins ranging from gator to crocodile and ostrich. And NBA players and coaches loved it and had a whole lot of fun calling him out for his ridiculous clothing and many times would even rip out his handkerchief and blow their noses on it during live interviews. Just fantastic. Let's take a listen to a montage we put together of Phil Jackson, Chris Webb, Greg Popovich, interacting with Craig about his outfits. You know,
5: I didn't recognize you right away. I thought you were the good humor ice cream man. I like that costume, too.
7: Oh, it's not a costume. That's that's my wardrobe. Oh, I thought I (laughs) thought it was a costume. How can you be that professional in a suit that looks like that? Seven turnovers and five field goals. What was the key? I think they were looking at your suit. It's a nice suit you got on there. Easter passed,
0: though. Easter already went by. (laughs) And our favorite player coach interaction with Craig Saver of all has to be, well, Kevin Garnett's most famous ripping of Sager's outfits. This time, Craig was wearing a pink checkered sport coat, a red striped shirt, blue tie, maroon and yellow handkerchief, red pants, red socks, and yes, red alligator boots. Okay, look, I've never in my life tried
8: to really go at you in your suits and stuff. Tonight, I am stressing to you, you take this outfit home and you burn it. We don't want to see this. I know you don't double back with outfits. I've never seen you in an outfit twice, but you take this right here. I don't care if it's Versace. Name brand, it costs. It's you, Saeed. I, no, Sae. I don't care. You take this and you burn it. It's not a part I can keep. No, nothing. So when you get done with this, you should be butt ass naked. This should be. This should be burned. Okay. It's good to see you, like always. In, in the shoes too. Just burn them. Okay. They just burn it. Don't ask no questions. Just burn the whole. The red socks, which the people can't see at home. Take all this, handkerchief, lime thong, all that. Burn it. Okay. Player cell. Burn it. <laughs> Hassling,
0: kerosene, either one. Classic. But Craig Sager it wasn't just some goofball with goofy outfits. He was a great reporter. Charles Barkley pointed out that most folks don't know that he went to Northwestern. But more importantly, he was brilliant at what he did. Here's a montage of former players Tracy McGrady, Shaquille O'Neal, and Kenny Smith. <laughs> talking about Sager's craft.
8: As a guy that was interviewed by him several times, there was, there was never a time where, where I felt like I didn't want to talk to Craig Sager. Like, no matter what was going on, um, he just made me feel comfortable. He just made me feel like um, I want to have a conversation with him. And, you know, what I love about Craig is he always asks the right question. He's very, very professional. You know, in LA we had a lot of stuff going on, but he never touched on that. He always, you know, touched on, touched on the right question, and and he brought the best out of everybody. And, you know, for me as a player, at the end of a game, if you got interviewed by Craig Sager, it means you did work. So whenever I saw Craig, I made it a point to try to dominate that game. So at the end, the last person he's talked to on TNT. In front of Kenny and Chuck would be me. When we were when we came into the NBA, no one knew the sideline reporter's name. No, it was that guy over there, that guy from CBS, that guy from you know NBC. Right. But Craig gave it a name. He he really did what almost like what Dennis Rodman did for rebounding. Mm. People didn't really think rebounding was a big deal, but Dennis Rodman said, oh you could get paid and be a great rebounder and get noticed. And Craig did the same thing for sideline reporting. Now, every, I know most sideline reporters and players know their name and they, they're the same people, and they, and, but the emulation started from that.
0: Yep, and while at work during a 2014 game in Dallas, Craig Sager suddenly became sick. And The doctors told him that his red blood cell count was so low that he was near death. He needed six blood transfusions just to survive. He had leukemia. They told him he had three to six months to live. His only hope was finding a perfect bone marrow match and then getting a transplant. You might think family members have a good shot at being perfect matches, but they are only 2% of the time. Craig needed a miracle, and he got it. His son, Craig Jr., was that perfect match. But the road ahead of chemotherapy and rehab was grueling, and he lost 60 pounds. His TNT colleague, Eric Johnson, frequently visited him and had an appreciation for what Craig was going through. You see, Eric himself once had cancer.
7: I remember um, the anxiety, and I remember the uncertainty, but he was always,
0: Hey, E.J., how are you, E.J.? Hey, look at this great card. Hey, look what they sent me. Hey, look at this putter. Man, I can't wait to get out and play with that. It was never a
7: question of me having to go in and say, hey, hang with them. You know, hey, you can do this. I'm the one who got fired up.
0: They say a positive outlet can be therapeutic, and that's how it looked for Craig Sager. A year later, the cancer was gone, and Craig was back on the job. His first game back was in his hometown of Chicago, but he wouldn't have a second game. Not then. The cancer came back, and they told him he had two weeks to live. Here's Craig responding to Bernie Goldberg's question, what are you thinking about at this point?
9: We're to do this. And uh, they said, we have this chemo. It hasn't been approved by the FDA yet. We've never given it to a person in your condition who's already had a transplant. I said, do what you have to do. And he says, you know, you may not survive this. This may kill you instead.
0: Craig's unprecedented chemo treatment was for 14 straight days, 24 hours a day. And that much chemo has a high chance of shutting down your body. But Craig lived to fight another day and received a second bone marrow transplant from his son. And most of all, to him, he made it back once more to the NBA. The rest of Craig Sager's incredible life story and heroic battle with leukemia. After these messages... This is Our American Stories. American Stories and we continue with our celebration of the life of Craig Sager husband, father of five and the NBA's most beloved sideline reporter and his battle with leukemia which he had successfully beaten into remission but then it came back and he beat it back again and returned to the work he loved and returned to interviewing Spurs coach Greg Popovich who can't stand doing mandatory interviews. Here is an example of how it typically goes between them.
9: Well coach the regular season around the corner. This what is a preseason, this? right? We well, gotta is, do this in
7: the preseason? Are you kidding me? Part of the
9: in the preseason,
7: we gotta do this? Well, the preseason?
9: We have to rehearse to get ready. I need the practice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but here's how the interview went this time on Craig's return to the sidelines.
7: I gotta honestly tell you this is the first time I've enjoyed doing this ridiculous interview we're required to do. And it's because you're here and you're back with us.
8: Welcome back,
9: baby. Well, thank, thank you very much. much. I lay in the hospital for months hoping to do this again. Now
7: ask me a couple of inane
0: questions. But then leukemia okay, came back a second time. And Sager asked the doctors.
9: What are my chances? How long do I have to live? Is there a cure? Um, so they talk in terms that everybody's totally different. And I go, I know. I go, well, what are the chances? You know? And, well... You get, normally, you get three to six months to live. But he goes, somebody may only have a week. Somebody may be five years. You could be the person with the five years. And I go, well, whatever it takes, let's get doing it, because I'm not going to be that three to six months. I'm going to be the five years, and like I said, I think we're going to make medical history.
0: Yet another bone marrow transplant is third, which is extremely rare this time, despite the cancer's relapse, Craig continued to work.
9: Oh my God, it's the greatest thing ever. When you're here you totally you forget that your platelets are low and your blood counts down and you need to have another bone marrow biopsy on Monday and you're going to have you know more cancer treatment you just all that's gone.
0: Craig Sager's doctors said they wanted to put him in isolation, believing it was his best hope of survival but Craig refused. Saying he wouldn't have died from leukemia, but a broken heart. His heart never broke, and after a heroic battle with leukemia for two years, Sager passed from this earth on December fifteenth, twenty sixteen. But before he did, on July thirteenth, twenty sixteen, at ESPN's ESPY Awards, he received the Jimmy V Award, an award for perseverance that is named after Jimmy Valvano, the head basketball coach of North Carolina State who improbably took them all the way to the title in 1983 and died of bone cancer at age 47. Just eight weeks before he died, Valvano himself won an ESPY award and gave this speech, which Craig said he'd pull up on his phone in his darkest moments at the hospital. Let's take a listen to just one of the highlights.
4: To me, there are three things we all should do every day. We do this every day of our life. You're going to have, what a wonderful, number one is laugh. You should laugh every day. Number two is think. You should spend some time in thought. And number three is you should have your emotions moved to tears. Could be happiness or joy. But think about it. If you laugh, you think, and you cry, that's a full day. That's a heck of a day. You do that seven days a week, you're going to have something special.
0: And that was Jimmy V assuring the audience that he was fine and hoping they'd live a proper life, too. And let's look forward now to Craig Sager's ESPY Award speech. He started off by thanking his bride,
9: my beloved bride, Stacy. <laughs> she is my heaven on earth. In the darkest of moments, tears running down her cheeks, we embraced and we prayed. Please. Don't leave me. She played it. We can fight this together. There's no fear in love, and your love is my strength.
0: Craig Sager continued
9: I have spent most of the past year and a half at the most impactful cancer hospital in the world, MD Anderson in Houston. And many nights I don't get out of the hospital until well after midnight, and I always take the same walking path back to the hotel. The sidewalks wind through a maze of buildings, including the Texas Children's Hospital. Many nights I'll stop, pause, and I'll go inside. And a few feet inside the hallway is this large model train display covered by glass. There are seven buttons on the outside, they activate the trains the circus, the toys and the trolley and many nights alone in the stillness and solitude of the hospital I push those buttons and I watch the trains as they disappear through the tunnel and emerge full steam on the other side. I watch the trains as they pass by the town square, the dinosaur Canyon, the Pirates Cove, Santa Land and the ice skating rink. And I sit there and I watch and I listen. I listen to the sounds of the circus, of the kids laughing and of the train chugging along. Now, I don't know why I'm so drawn to this train set. Perhaps it's my life coming full circle. Maybe it's just the kid inside all of us. Or perhaps It's a few minutes in my life that leukemia cannot take from me. The train actually takes two minutes and 20 seconds to make a full loop. But what is time really? When you are diagnosed with a terminal disease like cancer, leukemia, your perception of time changes. When doctors tell you you have three weeks to live, Do you try to live a lifetime of moments in three weeks? Or do you say, the hell with three weeks? When doctors tell you that your only hope of survival is 14 straight days of intense chemotherapy, 24 hours a day, do you sit there and count down the 336 hours? Or do you see each day as a blessing? Time is something that cannot be bought. It cannot be wagered with God, and it is not in endless supply. Time is simply how you live your life.
0: And here's Craig on how he lived his life and his advice for how we should live ours.
9: I have run with the Bulls in Pamplona. I have raced with Mario Andretti in Indianapolis. I have climbed the Great Wall of China. I have jumped out of airplanes over Kansas. I've wrestled gators in Florida. I have sailed the ocean with Ted Turner. I have swam with the oceans in the Caribbean. And I have interviewed Greg Popovich. (laughs) Mid-game, Spurs down seven. If I've learned anything through all of this, it's that each and every day is a canvas waiting to be painted. An opportunity for love, for fun, for living, for learning. To those of you out there who are suffering from cancer, facing adversity, I want you to know that your will to live and to fight cancer can make all the difference in the world. The way you think influences the way you feel. And the way you feel determines how you act.
0: And here's how Craig Sager concluded this remarkable speech at ESPN's ESPY Awards.
9: I am grateful to my parents, Coral and Al. They raised me with a positive outlook on life. I always see the glass half full. I see the beauty in others. And I see the hope for tomorrow. If we don't have hope and faith, we have nothing. Whatever I might have imagined, a terminal diagnosis would do to my spirit, it summoned quite the opposite. The greatest appreciation for life itself. So I will never give up. And I will never give in. I will continue to keep fighting, sucking the marrow out of life as life sucks the marrow out of me. I will live my life full of love and full of fun. It's the only way I know how. Thank you and good night.
0: And that's Craig Sager trying to lift everybody's spirits as he's dying. Pretty good. Pretty damn terrific, actually. And that's what we love doing here on Our American Stories. For all of you going through tough times, hard times, and even those that aren't. You just turn on a speech like this or put on Valvanos every once in a while, no matter what you're going through. Watching Jimmy V smiling at you while he's dying is just the greatest, greatest message to all of us what we do with our lives, what we do with our time. And always from both of those men, you heard the word love over and over and over again. And here in Our American Stories, we talk about love more than almost anything else. A life well lived. Craig Sager. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The term comic book is one of the great misnomers in entertainment, but they're not books, and they're not comical. This American industry has produced cultural icons that are recognized in every corner of the globe. By taking a look inside the pages of the comic book superhero, we can learn much about ourselves and the world around us. Here's Greg Hengler.
10: Once there was a world without comic books. Like jazz and like baseball, like so much that is distinctly American, the comic book is born in the country's margins. In the early 1930s, two immigrant entrepreneurs, Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz, run a small publishing company putting out pulp magazines. Here's comic writers Mark Wade and Gerard Jones. Some people
6: did jail time for these magazines in the 30s. So they were, they were pornography by the standards of the 30s. Harry Dunnenfeld almost went to jail. He had to talk one of his employees into taking the rap for him in exchange for a job for life. The handwriting came on the wall about 37, 38. He thought, you
3: know what, maybe Spicy Pulps is not where I want to be if the law is going to be breathing down my neck.
10: For a country in the midst of the Great Depression, newspaper comic strips or funnies are a popular, cheap, and humorous amusement. Comic books are simply reprints of newspaper comic strips. In 1935, a 45-year-old former U.S. Army major and prolific pulp magazine writer named Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson is inspired to put out his own comic book. But unlike the others, he will feature original comic material created by freelance cartoonists.
3: January 11, 1935, you go to the newsstands in New York, and you find on them... Fun Comics number
6: 1, the very first DC comic. Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson had a sense, not just that this is filler, but that new material might find its own audience.
10: The Major needs business partners, and Donenfeld and Leibowitz need less racy material to publish. In 1937, the three men enter into a partnership, and Detective Comics, the comic that would give DC its name, hits the stands. As the title promises... Detective Comics differs from comic strips and books. Humor is giving way to crime fighting. At the same time in Cleveland, Ohio, two high school students, sons of Jewish immigrants, are escaping the struggles of their everyday lives into a fantasy world of their own making. Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster are shy and unpopular in school. Unsuccessful with the girls, and insecure about their bespectacled appearance and physical abilities. They lose themselves in science fiction magazines and nurture fantasies of power and success. Here's comic illustrator Arlen Schumer and comic book historian Danny Fingeroth.
0: I think it was the year 1934. It was a hot summer night and Jerry Siegel, the teenage writer, couldn't sleep at night. He was tossing and turning.
11: He had this dream in which he kept having flashes of a character that would a combination of Samson and Hercules and a dozen other characters, from the Bible to the comic strips to the serials in the movie theater.
0: He wrote it all down. The very next morning, he runs over to his friend Joe Schuster's house, his artist friend and he tells him the story of this superheroic character. And Joe Schuster starts making the original drawings.
6: Joe Schuster was a bodybuilder and fascinated with uh, bodybuilding magazines, fascinated with images of acrobats, the tights, the cape, You can see all that in Superman's costume. Jerry Siegel's father died in a robbery when Jerry was a teenager. And the perpetrators were never caught. So he had this very immediate visceral reason to hate crime. And I think Superman for him was a character who could, in a fantasy way, prevent things like that from
10: happening. Here's Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster.
12: I was quite meek and I was quite mild, and I thought, gee, wouldn't it be great if I was a mighty person and his girls didn't know that this clown here is really somebody special.
2: I was very small and I was always pushed around by bullies and so forth. So. That was one of my dreams. I took courses in bodybuilding and weightlifting. I don't know if it helped, but I made an effort.
10: In the artistic world of the 1930s, comic books rank just above the adult magazine industry.
9: Sunday's one day I to see the
10: Comic strip creators are very rich celebrities. Guys like Chester Gould with Dick Tracy, Al Cap with Little Abner, Alex Raymond with Flash Gordon, and Hal Foster with Tarzan. Siegel and Schuster see this as a golden opportunity. They submit their Superman creation to newspaper editors across the country, and in turn, every one of them promptly rejects it, some more than once. Here's DC artist Neil Adams.
13: Nobody liked it. This was an anomaly. This was, I mean, nobody else was doing it. Everybody was doing cowboys, detective, science fiction type things. These two 17-year-old Jewish kids in Cleveland, Ohio, created
10: a genre. Meanwhile, Donnenfeld and Leibowitz are about to launch a new DC comic book title they call Action Comics. Having all but given up hope of ever seeing Superman in newspaper comics, Siegel and Schuster, now both 23, sell the rights of Superman to DC for $130 and go to work. June 1938, the first issue of Action Comics is born, and there he is, on the cover, the red-caped crusader in blue tights with a signature S emblazoned on his chest, holding an automobile above his head. That 10-cent comic book sold for over $3.2 million in 2014. Leibowitz cautiously has 200,000 copies printed, but receives dealers' requests for more. He keeps the print run small until the fourth issue sells out. By the seventh issue, Action Comics is selling over half a million copies each month. And when we come back,
0: more of this remarkable American story. This is Our American Stories. Is our American stories, and we continue with our story
10: of comic superheroes. In 1939, Siegel and Schuster realize their dream when the two are asked to create a daily Superman newspaper comic strip and a color page for Sunday. Then DC did something unprecedented they launched Superman. The first comic book title devoted entirely to a single character. Here's the Jimi Hendrix of comic book art, Jim Steranko.
2: The elements that Siegel and Schuster adopted into this comic strip set the pace for virtually everything to come
13: afterward. Superman. The Kids in America. <laughs> They went ape. Within two years, these guys had changed the world. The comic book publishers, every one of them said, make superheroes.
10: Superman represents President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal as imagined by those who champion it, without flaws or negative consequences. The young Jewish creators also define their superhero from another planet by what is happening In Nazi Germany. Here's the former president and publisher at DC Comics, Paul Levitz and Jerry Siegel.
12: These are families that have come over from Europe and they're watching whoever they left behind disappear in a very scary fashion. So the
3: characters live for them.
12: Nazism was uh, you know, rising up, and uh, a lot of innocent people were being uh, killed. Countries were being invaded. A lot of innocents uh, slaughtered. And I felt that the world desperately needed a crusader, if only a fictional one.
10: Here's comic writer Dwayne McDuffie.
7: Superman was about the immigrant experience in a very, very powerful way. It's the kid from the old country who brings the best values from the old country, in this case, the old planet. To America, adds it to the pot, and accepts the best part of America. It's a really powerful set of ideas
13: that was really important to people in the 30s and 40s. The newsstand dealers couldn't get enough. Within three issues, they were up to a million copies. It was a phenomenon. There was never
3: anything like it. There was that supermania that hit in 1939 and 1940. We have not seen anything like it in American pop culture since. Beatlemania was not that big. Over 100,000
11: boys and girls in the United States and Canada are members of the Superman of America. One mother says.
13: I should like to thank the publishers of Action Comics Magazine for including a health page in every issue. Billy has been eating his cereal and drinking his milk regularly since Superman told him to do so.
3: He can do about anything, can't he? Everywhere you go, Superman. He's in your newspaper strip he's on your radio there's short cartoons in your theater he's on clothing you know he's in the macy's day parade as a balloon he's at the world's fair in costume it's superman day at the world's fair it's a big deal everybody would have known superman from your grandmother right down to the immigrant who just got off of ellis island everybody would have known
10: dc is quick to exploit the superman formula Editors send out a call to create a second costume superhero to match Superman's success. For the poor 18-year-old Jewish cartoonist from the Bronx named Bob Kane, this call does not go unnoticed. Here's Bob Kane.
7: And at DC Comics at that time, the editor came over to me and he said, would you like to create another a superhero in the uh, genre of Superman? And let's see, I was making about $25 a week and I said, how much does Siegel and sister who created Superman, make? Well, they make $800 a week apiece. I said, for that kind of
3: money, you'll have a superhero on Monday. By Monday morning, you know, Kane comes back to his editor, Vince Sullivan, and says, here's what I got. And Vince Sullivan knew something good when he saw it. And he said, "See, I love it. What do you call it? I said, that's a good
7: question, Vince. <laughs> Maybe we'll call it the bat hyphenated man.
10: Less than a year after Superman's debut, DC introduce the Batman.
7: I wanted to be Bruce Wayne in my reverie. Instead of a poor kid, I imagined I'd like to
3: be a rich playboy and fight crime at night. I can probably count on the fingers of one hand the comic book characters that have ever been created by affluent, successful people. The characters of longevity always come from a place of oppression, always come from a a place of wanting to break out of the world that you're in.
10: Here's comic artist... Erwin and
2: We all were kids from the Bronx. We were all a bunch of schmucks and being t- t- talking Jewish schmucks. We were innocent, talented guys. Who were schmucks? We never drew ourselves. Why? Why should we draw poor little guys? What would inspire us to draw poor little guys?
7: Comic books is an industry made up of people who aren't accepted,
2: who desperately
7: want to be accepted. So they desperately want to be like mainstream America. It's why Batman's a millionaire and Superman is a farmer, real mainstream, real, real, real America. So they imprint themselves on heroic images that embody all the stuff they wish they were rich and handsome and muscular and able to handle any situation and uh, not tongue-tied.
3: The public loved Batman. The public embraced Batman very quickly, especially when you get into the fourth or fifth Batman adventure and you start to outline his origins. The classic scene of young Bruce Wayne with his parents out behind a theater, and his parents are gunned down before his young eyes, and that's the moment that made him want to turn into Batman.
4: That's why Batman works so well. Whatever he does, you understand why he does it. He's lost his parents at a random crime in the city, and he wants to make sure that no one else suffers the same horror
13: that he had to go through.
10: Batman's popularity soon rivals Superman's, and business at D.C. is booming.
13: Within two years, you had Superman, who was so powerful that he could move planets, and then you had Batman, who had no powers at all he was the opposite. All the other characters fit in between these two characters. In
10: 1939, a young pulp magazine publisher named Martin Goodman launches an enduring enterprise called Marvel Comics. He puts the project under the editorial direction of his hard-working teenage nephew, Stanley Lieber, who writes comic books under the pseudonym of Stan Lee. Here's Stan Lee.
2: Comic books were not respected in those days. I thought someday I would be a writer and I would write books. And I didn't want to use my name on these comics, this name that would one day appear on the great American novel. So I just shortened my name, which had been Stanley Martin Lieber. I shortened the first name, Stanley, to Stan Lee, so that I could save my name for these great things I would later write.
10: A year after launching, Stan Lee creates Marvel's first star superhero, whose popularity comes to rival Superman himself. The ingeniously simple premise behind the red and gold costumed Captain Marvel was an orphan newsboy named Billy Batson who becomes the most powerful superhuman adult imaginable merely by speaking the magic word, SHAZAM. The letters stand for the seven immortal heroes, Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, and Mercury. DC responds to Captain Marvel's popularity by suing Marvel for alleged copyright infringement of Superman. The legal battle drags on for 12 years until 1953 when inevitably DC's Man of Steel wins, as he always does. In 1939, the war in Europe has begun. Even though America isn't involved yet, many superheroes are. Months after the Hitler-Stalin Pact in February 1940, Superman decides to fly himself into enemy territory.
3: The moment you put him in Nazi Germany, you know, war is over. In fact, Look Magazine did a piece with Siegel and Schuster early on. The question was, how would Superman end the war? And the answer was... He flies over, he grabs Hitler by the scruff of the neck, he flies to Russia, grabs Stalin, takes them before the world court, and that's two pages, by the way. So Superman could have ended the war in, apparently, 14 panels of comics.
10: Superman's victory made it into the hands of Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, who denounces Superman as a Jew and mocks its creators as physically and intellectually circumcised.
0: And when we come back, we continue this remarkable American story. By the way, just to hear Stanley Lee talk about his own embarrassment, putting his actual real name, Stanley Lieber, on these comic books, because one day he was going to be the next Ernest Hemingway. Well, you don't hear Stan Lee saying that anymore. Or any of these guys in this area of work, because this is literature and of the highest caliber and brand around the world. When we continue more on comic book superheroes here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of comic book superheroes, the way it all began here in the United States. And by the way, if you like what you hear, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our podcast. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Let's get back to the story.
10: Nine months before the United States would officially enter World War II, two Jewish cartoonists create a character who is ready to take on the Nazis who bursts on the scene with an unforgettable cover. Here's Jim Steranko and comic historian Bradford Wright.
2: Captain
12: America threw a smashing right cross to the jaw of
11: Adolf Hitler. That said everything about the character. They got hate mail for that. Uh, They got hate mail from isolationists. Captain America exploded on the newsstand and sold out of his first issue.
10: In the spring of 1941, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby mix their patriotic super soldier with political prophecy when Captain America stops an unnamed Asian power from destroying the U.S. Pacific Fleet, seven months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Then, in 1941, D.C. launches Wonder Woman the statuesque Amazon wrapped in the American flag. Here's comic writer and editor Louise Simonson.
2: She's not an unreasonable icon to have been created. During World War II, women took over a lot of male roles. She's a Rosie the Riveter, only a goddess. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, A date which will live in infamy.
10: When the Japanese actually do cripple the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, the men in tights echo the nations. Batman delivers guns to the men on the front line, and Wonder Woman uses the heads of Hitler, Hirohito, and Mussolini as bowling pins. Here's comic creator Michael Chabon and Stan Lee. The superheroes went off to war with great gusto
12: week after week, month after month, just pounding the hell out of the Nazis. The
2: stories had so much pro-American propaganda that you'd almost think they were subsidized by the government, but it was just... We felt we had to do that.
12: And then something very interesting happened, which was that comic books were included in care packages that were sent to soldiers, along with chocolate and cigarettes, and comic books became part of the standard reading material for G.I. serving in the Second World War, and they liked them.
10: Many of the brightest talents in the comic industry join their superhero creations in the fight. Many enlist. Not all come back.
3: Bert Crisman was a young illustrator who with Garner Fox created Sandman, but his real love was flying, his real love was adventure, so he joined the Flying Tigers in World War II and tragically was shot down over Burma in the line of service.
10: Stan Lee also served.
2: I felt I can't be writing about all these comic book heroes and not be fighting myself.
10: After victory in 1945, America welcomes home its real-life heroes. But the star-spangled morale boosters are no longer needed, nor wanted. Most get canceled by 1951, including Captain America. There are only three superheroes who are doing well, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. These three American icons carry the comic book industry on their backs to unprecedented heights when sales reach $100 million a month in 1953. Most of this success is due to DC following their audience to a brand new medium, television.
1: Faster than a speeding bullet.
10: In the 1940s, Superman's mission More is defined one way.
1: Superman fights a never-ending
10: battle
11: for truth and justice. By the 1950s and the, uh, the introduction of the Superman television show, of course, it became... Truth,
1: justice, and the American
11: way. That phrase, the American way, was all over the place in the 1950s because now we're stuck in a Cold War. In
10: 1954, superheroes faced their greatest battle, not against a mad scientist or a foreign enemy, But against the United States Senate, both houses of the U.S. Senate hold hearings on the nefarious effects of comic books on young minds.
12: Comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency.
10: The hearings are a major blow for the comic book industry. Fearing the coercive effects of government censorship, and in an effort to survive, most of the comic book publishers form the Comics Code Authority, a self-governing organization that will police each issue and grant seals of approval.
5: At that time, the comic books were so attacked for the material that they were doing, or if that comic code emblem was not on the book,
2: the book did not get distributed.
10: Just one year after the code's implementation, sales plunge by 75%.
2: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
10: In the 1960s, we're going to the moon. We're already in Vietnam. And because of the government's heavy hand, there are millions of kids who are unfamiliar with comic books. But on a golf course in New York, superhero history is about to change when the publisher of DC Comics, Jack Leibowitz, informs the publisher of Marvel Comics, Martin Goodman, that they are having great success with their latest comic, The Justice League, which combines the forces of Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, and Aquaman to fight against the forces of evil. Marvel's publisher takes the DC success story to Stan Lee. Lee takes it to his wife. Here's Stan Lee.
2: I had been doing these comics for about 20 years or so, and I really had had it up to here. I felt I want to quit and try something else. I told my wife. So she said, you know, Stan, before you quit, why don't you do one book the way you'd like to do it? Something for people, hopefully, with a higher IQ. I came up with the Fantastic Four. They were trying to be the first people to reach the moon. I had them take a spaceship. The ship is belted by cosmic rays and they have to crash land. And because of the cosmic rays, each of them got a different power. Incredible.
10: Inspired by the space race between the Americans and the Soviet Union, These will be the first superheroes invented out of the Atomic Age.
2: Mr. Fantastic would over-explain everything the way I tend to do. The Thing would say, will you shut up? We got it already And, and he and the torch were always arguing and fighting.
12: The Thing hated being The Thing and the idea of superheroes hating being a superhero was really a novelty. And it produced a lot of psychological richness, at least comparatively speaking, uh, that had not been seen in comic books before. And so it was with the creation of the Fantastic Four that uh, comic books really uh, entered into the modern era.
10: Marvel's decision to cast outsiders as heroes continues when in 1962, Stan Lee unleashes another atomic-aged anti-hero, the Incredible Hulk.
2: I am the least scientific person you'll ever know. So, I tried to seem scientific with our characters. I had the Hulk, and he was inundated by gamma rays. That's how he became the Hulk. Now, I wouldn't know a gamma ray if I saw it. I don't know what a gamma ray is, but if it sounds good, I'll use it.
0: And what an American voice. What an American story. The 20th century right into the 21st. Comic book superheroes here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now for the final part of this great story about, well, American comic book superheroes, and so much of it, as we learned, had to do with World War II and these giant villains on the world stage, Hitler and Stalin. And now we're moving along into the 60s and 70s and up to the present. Let's go and return back to where we last left off.
2: Marvel had suddenly emerged because Stan Lee created characters with... An additional dimension to them that is superheroes with problems
10: this gives Stan Lee an idea why not weave a new kind of tale a teenage superhero Lee pitches the idea to his boss at Marvel
2: you say that he's a teenager A hero can only be an adult, teenagers, are sidekicks. And you
11: say you want them to have problems. Stan, don't you know what a hero is? It's interesting in the 1930s, uh, you had the country seemingly falling apart, and yet you had these superheroes come in that were totally confident in their ability to resolve these problems. And then in the Kennedy years, the early 60s, things seemed to be fairly stable, and yet you had the Marvel superheroes come in who were vulnerable and and confused and disoriented. The difference was the baby boomers. They were notoriously (laughs) self-absorbed. All this was magnified in in popular culture geared towards youth. James Dean, for example, you know, he may look tough on the outside, but his heart is breaking and he wants to be accepted and he's unsure and his parents don't understand him and the world doesn't understand him.
10: Peter Parker is a shy science student who lives with his aunt and uncle. He's bitten by a radioactive spider that gives him spider-like powers. Peter doesn't even consider fighting crime. He goes into show business. But when he fails to stop a thief who later murders his uncle, Peter Parker learns...
2: ...that in this world, with great power, there must also come great responsibility.
0: What makes Spider-Man such an enduring character isn't Spider-Man. It's Peter Parker. Clark Kent was in disguise. Peter Parker was a fact. He was a 98 pound weakling. His life sucked.
12: Even if you have the ability to, you know, swing from skyscrapers over the streets of New York, it doesn't help. That endures in the character Spider-Man to this day.
10: In spite of Stan Lee's pessimistic publisher, Spider-Man premieres in the summer of 1962 and goes on to become Marvel's greatest success, second only to DC's Superman. Put simply, story formulas that appeal to the widest audiences tend to proliferate and endure while those that do not, do neither. Comic books succeed or fail on the merits of their storytelling. But there is one issue that almost every American could rally around. The drug epidemic. In 1971, the Nixon administration reaches out to Stan Lee about doing a Spider-Man series on the dangers of drugs. Here's Stan Lee.
2: We sent that book to the Comic Code office as we were sending all the books, and they rejected the book. I said, why? They said, you're not allowed to mention drugs in the comics. I said, but we're not telling the kids to take drugs. It's an anti-drug message. Sorry. So I was so proud of my publisher. I told him about it, and I said, Martin, I think we ought to put the book out without the seal of approval. He said, do it, Stan. We got more mail from teachers and parents and doctors and everybody all over the country saying how much they loved that book and how
13: delighted they were. Within a week, they had a new meeting of the Comics Code Authority, which was all the publishers, the self-regulating agency, and they rewrote the Comics Code. They rewrote it to such an extent that it's gone.
10: When it comes to the first superhero, Superman's durability is proven once again, this time on the big screen, and stars the 25-year-old Juilliard graduate Christopher Reeve. Here's Christopher Reeve.
6: What sets Superman apart is that he has the wisdom to use his power for good. He's got the kind of maturity, or he's got the innocence, really, to look at the world very, very simply, and that's what makes him so different. When he says, "I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way," everybody goes, (laughs) you know, but he's not kidding.
3: It was just so perfectly cast. Christopher Reeve is Superman. Nobody else can touch the hem of that cape.
13: It's all right. Nothing to get worried about.
3: Here is a character in a world where I didn't feel like I was being paid attention to in a world where I didn't feel like I mattered. Here is somebody who cares about everybody. Whether you're rich or poor or black or white, Superman cares about everybody.
10: And just in case it ever comes up in trivia, the first words uttered to the courteous cape Crusader come from a star-struck pimp who sounds like Ric Flair. Hey, Jim, Excuse me.
4: That's a bad outfit.
10: The 1978 Superman motion picture is one of the biggest moneymakers in Warner Brothers' film history to date. The movie is nominated for three Academy Awards, and a new wave of supermania hits in the wake of the film's success, a wave that rolls into three sequels. I've got you. In the closing years of the Cold War, inflation is high, and President Jimmy Carter is diagnosing Americans as having a crisis of confidence. We can
1: see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation.
10: The comic book industry sees a desperate need for strength, confidence, and the courage to use force in the face of evil. Writer-artist Frank Miller gets his big break in 1979 when at the age of 22, when he revives a 1970s vigilante called the Punisher. And actually kills people.
11: In the 1970s, there was a growing backlash against crime waves, against what some considered the permissiveness uh, that had crept into American society in the 60s and 70s. And this backlash found reflection in some popular vigilante anti heroes. In Hollywood, for example, you had the Dirty Harry films. Uh-uh. You could ask yourself questions.
12: Do I feel lucky?
11: Well, do you, punk? In comic books, you had a character like the Punisher. The Punisher was a Vietnam veteran who returned home to find his family murdered uh, in in a gangland killing. Uh, He undertook a one-man war against crime, saying that justice, you know, had failed to punish the guilty. So he's gonna exact justice himself.
10: Readers love The Punisher, and Marvel meets their demand. There
11: are cities in Michigan.
10: Oh, shut up. Here again is comic book historian Bradford Wright.
11: People voted for Reagan because he kicked butt, because he came on as a tough guy. And I think that attitude was mirrored in superheroes of the 80s. It's not to say the people who wrote The Punisher believed that, but I think they did tap into a popular move.
10: In the 1990s, the comic book industry make another attempt to captivate readers. Sex, cynicism, and violence reach a level of occurrence never seen before. By 1993, thousands of comic book stores close, hundreds of creators lose their jobs, and by 1996, Marvel files for bankruptcy. Monthly sales fall from 38 million to 7 million. Here's comic writer Marv Wolfman and Dwayne McDuffie.
6: They got darker and darker and darker, and they forgot the core of what most of these superhero comics are, which is about triumphing over adversity.
7: The only way you could tell the villains from the heroes was by whose logo was on the cover. I mean, their behavior was evil, not morally ambiguous. These guys were just flat out, oh, I'm going to kill this guy, he's a guard.
10: The call to action against the dark moral ambiguity will overtake not just the comic book universe, but the real world. One September morning. Here's the CEO of Marvel Comics, Avi Arad.
12: This picture of Spider-Man looking at ground zero. It's compelling, it's emotional. He represents all of us.
10: DC echoes Marvel's sentiment with Superman's response while he gazes at a giant collage of the fallen 9-11 heroes. The one-word bubble reads, Wow. Superheroes endure because they represent basic American beliefs, that there are choices to make between good and evil, that individuals can triumph over adversity.
7: The ones that work are archetypes, made by
12: people who believed and cared. Batman will still be around in a hundred years' time. Comic book writers and artists are doing the same thing that storytellers did, drawing the pictures on the caves at Lesko. We're using story to create
3: context for life. Superheroes have always flourished in times of the greatest American adversity. In the Depression era, we were afraid of whether or not we would be able to put food on the table. We were afraid of being involved in a great world war that would take our freedom away. In the atomic age, we were afraid of radiation. Today, we're afraid of terrorist attacks. And in all of those eras of history, that's when superheroes have enjoyed their greatest resurgence
13: they're our mythology they're our heroes we need ideals to look up to and you know they're not going to let us down superman's not going to let us down superman's always going to be there
10: to people all over the world superheroes embody the values hopes and dreams of the greatest nation on the planet i'm greg Hingler, and this is our american story
0: And if you like what you heard, go to ouramericannetwork.org. There's so much more, hundreds of hours of podcasts, free for all to hear. This is Our American Stories.